and welcome to Creative Block. We're your hosts, V. And Sean, we interview people in the creative industries about their life, work, and hobbies while we doodle jam. We ask people on our social medias like YouTube, Patreon, uh, Threads. Uh, we still post on Twitter somehow and, and all of those. If they wanted us, if that specific topics they wanted us to discuss, as well as some drawing prompts. Today, we have with us Liza Singer. Hello. Hi. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. This is so exciting. How do you do? I, I do well. <laughs> How about you guys? <laughs> uh i'm i'm sick i'm coming to you guys live from my uh my deathbed no i'm just kidding um i'm over here with a too much candy and um a bunch of emergency and and we're gonna we're gonna do this episode anyway and i'm gonna just try to come with a delirious fever energy yeah <laughs> wait i've always called you lisa but you're do you go by is it lisa or lisa it's lisa Liza? Oh my god, that's so funny. Wow, I've been calling you the wrong name this whole time. Uh, uh, <laughs> Liza, you've, you've, uh, you're um, storyboard artist and director, and you've worked both on TV and feature, and you also have a graphic novel in the works, correct? Yes, I do indeed. Yeah, I've been working on it for a while now, actually. Oh yeah, how long? Oh my god, I think it got bought in, was it 2022? Like, that long ago? Um, but contracts took forever, so I think the contract was wrapped in June of 2023. I've been working on it since. Oh no, sorry, 2021. It's 2023 now. I In my head, I was like, it's 2024. I have lost the years. But yeah, I've been <laughs> working on it since 2021, I believe, was initially when we signed, we had the auction for the book and then i was working on it through 2022 and this has been my lines year basically because it's a 300 plus page book so it Whoa, is a that's a monster book. yeah it's a big boy <laughs> how did that come about because i mean it it sounds like you have a lot of it you you've had a lot of it planned out for a while it was this something that you pitched or were releasing pages from in short amounts so actually, it was a story I came up with in college, around college, um, and it was a personal story that I was kind of retelling as an animated series pitch. And when I kind of, so initially I was going to pitch it as an animated series, and then I got hit up by an agent for publishing who was curious about like what kind of work, you know, what kind of stories I had. And I just sent like a whole bunch and she was like, this one really piques my interest. I'd love to learn more. And that was sort of the one that we went with as my first book. But um, yeah, I've been sitting on this since, uh, I guess, like 2012. So it's a story oh God, I've had unreal. for a really long time. So I kind of always knew that it was something that I wanted to tell. But yeah, it's been it's been a long time coming. <laughs> what do you think That's... it is about like college and like high school? idea? Do you think that like we just had more time to like fully flesh out worlds because we weren't like fully working full jobs because I've had this similar things happen where there's just ideas from like college or high school that like ended up being things that expanded way longer and you know way after yeah I mean for me that's kind of been the case where I've always you know um 
I feel like I was bored in school. I think that's like the simple answer is it wasn't even that I was, you know, it's like you're trying to fail all the time where you're kind of sitting in class mulling over, you have a notebook, you're drawing down ideas rather than paying attention in class. And that just kind of, you know, fills that time where like, I feel like I'm always working now. So I don't really have the, I'm always struggling to find the time to kind of be creative, though I always do. I have a ton of ideas still that I'm working on, but I think those I try to refine in some way <laughs> to like always kind of come up with you know new ideas i'm realizing that drawing is distracting me so yeah 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 <laughs> don't um, worry about it so i'm gonna really say that sorry for that um yeah i feel like always the ideas from high school and college kind of stay with you and they're always ones that i kind of try to look at and analyze and expand on i mean one of the ideas I've been working on forever that I wrote recently as a pilot, it's been an idea I've had since middle school. <laughs> and in middle school, it was like, I would say like a very baseline, like shonen anime style thing. And it has grown into like a high level, like uh, political sci-fi. And it's like changed a lot in terms of sort of the depth of it, um, but it's always kind of lived with me. And I think that that's something that always happens as your characters sort of grow and live with you over time. And maybe because I was a very uh, lonely only child, I was like, <laughs> they're my friends. <laughs> so <laughs> my OCs and my stories to me, I think live in their own kind of world, just kind of growing in their own way. And I don't think I've ever lost them, but I, I do come up with new ideas on occasion still even as an adult. <laughs> that is so cool. I uh, This is a complete tangent, but you're talking about being an only child living with your OCs slash imaginary friends reminded me of this YouTube video that I saw recently about this little boy who is an older child and during the pandemic didn't have like friends to hang out with. So he made friends with his Halloween decoration skeleton and it's so cute. <laughs> so uh, complete tangent um that is so cool that like you had all these worlds that you were spending time in and i think it's so cool too that you when you have an idea uh even if it's in middle school you you kept it you kept it close to your heart and you kept kind of like working on it because i feel like sometimes as creators we can be like oh i'm you know i'm i've moved i've moved past this idea but you've kind of kept all of them uh how do you because you you that idea you had from college ended up being what you pitched as the graphic novel. How, how do you kind of like uh, keep a record of all these ideas? Do you keep them in your head? Do you have like Google Docs? Like what's your... Oh man. So yeah, I have Google Docs now, but I have notebooks upon notebooks from childhood that I used to write. Like some kids had diaries. I had idea mm. books basically. And so even like my sketchbooks, I would sketch doodles of ideas of like I guess thumbnails is like rudimentary thumbnails at the time of childhood and then I would write down plot ideas and and you know figure it all out I would sometimes take screen caps I had a lot of text edit docs because those would like be easy to transfer um like I remember the first time I posted that middle school ideas so and not this this college one but I posted it on Neopets for like uh, on the forums for feedback yes. that's like how old <laughs> neopets i was like on the neopets forum i was like what do people think about my graphic novel idea <laughs> <laughs> so i mean there's a lot of like weird records that i have of all these ideas um 
I did this like weird thing in college where I wanted to make my own wallpaper. So the college idea and my book, which is called Wayward, and it's been called Wayward since college, but which is actually an interesting conversation is my publisher wants to change the name. That has been very hard for me to want to do. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, I used to want to make wallpaper. So I would put up large sheets of paper, all on my walls with like duct tape. And I would use markers and I would draw ideas. So I came up with the idea by drawing, like I would have like parties where friends would come over, small parties, but we would all draw on my walls with like um, Prisma colors and stuff. And um, that's like where I started as I was writing the idea once on my wall. And I still have that piece of paper, like it's kind of crumply, it's kind of, you know, water damage, but it's the first drawings of the characters I ever did. And uh it still kind of lives with me. The characters, obviously, the designs haven't changed a lot, but my drawing style and skill has changed. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good that you've improved since then. Um, do, do, do you think that uh, that we all just get into animation to legitimize getting to talk about our OCs all the time? Because now it's not like, oh, you want to see my OC? Now it's like, you want to see my pitch? Like, you want to see my, my original mm -hmm. short? My... And uh, you, oh, I came up with this new character. You want to, you want to see? You know. I mean, I I think so. I I mean, it's. I think it's really it starts with our way of interpreting the world. Like we all start with our OCs as our way to communicate, understand the world, kind of build. And obviously, we see cool stories and characters, and we're like, I want to do that too. And yeah, I think like it's def. I think we're still playing pretend as adults. And I think we're always, especially artists in animation, mm -hmm. I think we all still want to be on the playground running around being our OCs. And this is our way of kind of doing it in, a, <laughs> in an adult appropriate setting where we, you know, uh, can make a living. Um, but I think a lot of us would prefer to run around being cartoon characters <laughs> in our heart of hearts. I mean, that's why a lot of us still play D&D. &D. Yeah. True, true, true. That is so true. And it's funny, too, because I don't know if you've ever felt that, but I feel like it was okay to have OCs when you were, like, in school, even college. But then as a professional, there was, like, almost a little bit of a, like, weird stigma with the word OC. But now I'm, like, using the hashtag anyway. So who's laughing now? Well, I, I think it also <laughs> depends on whether your OCs are based on like existing properties like if you if you have a sonic oc and you're 34 mm. i think it's 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 usually viewed a little <laughs> no, bit differently I feel, than, I feel like if yeah if you have like an like if it's a if it's a completely original character that's not tied to any fandom that's still technically an oc yeah yeah right but, i don't know but i mean yeah I, I i guess i guess that's i don't know like i said i, I think that's that's why we sort of get into like you know, like a, someone who makes a comic or a weekly strip or whatever, they're just drawing their OCs, you know, like yeah. they're, ju they're just making a comic out of their little guys that they made up from scratch. So um, I guess it just depends on, I I don't know, d does maybe the word OC cheapens it or, or makes it feel more juvenile or like a learn, like a learning thing or something? I mean... Yeah, I think there is like a weird inherent bias because like OC did start with like, you know, I think it was the fan art fan fiction where it's like, I insert yeah. my OC into this world. And again, yeah. like the terms like Mary Sue, Gary Sue, like came mm -hmm. from that world. And certainly, oh my God, I, I did write fan fiction when I was really little. 
and I remember one of my first fanfics I ever published had like an embarrassingly very overpowered OC that had like all the trauma and all the character that you could imagine. It was Bernardo. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Naruto like, was this like franchise where like all the characters were like so traumatized I think it was kind of one of those first shonen where like they all had it hard like <laughs> no for sure and I think that's why I was like I was out competing for the trauma too so just about being powerful it was also like who could my character have the saddest backstory yes <laughs> that's so funny it's so true I mean, I also know a lot of people, I won't rat them out, but um, I know some people who converted uh, what were once OC stories or fanfics into stories that they now, you know, pitch and develop. Like, I I mean, I think I even am sort of guilty of that as I used to be on roleplay forums, which I don't know if you guys know what those are. This is me just completely yes. reading out and revealing yes okay good <laughs> yes <laughs> don't worry you're in the, you're in animation company we get it <laughs> so glad i no i yeah. mean there's a lot of stuff that i think is similar just to, it it's a it's evolved too like there's a lot of like twitch streamers that'll go into a grand theft auto and they'll all like play different characters and do voices and live like in the character in that and these are so, so that, popular know. like so what, what were you what were you saying about your the role-playing forums before i i cut you off with grand theft auto roleplay? it's okay uh no i was just gonna say that like some of my quote-unquote ocs came from a role-play forum that i was on and it was like a different world and i just it was like a high school um like kind of x-men-esque thing and i just like developed characters and they were so separate enough of that world that i just would develop like fantastic realism characters um for a book i was writing because so, i have a lot of too many characters too many books. Are, and is there are there any um techniques that you developed uh like when you're doing that so playfully when you were younger that you bring into developing characters now that you can like like connect for sure i mean i think one of the things that was really great is i guess this is a humble brag but one of the things that i've been told a lot in my writing is i write very believable characters and i think roleplay forums is where you really you don't really write stories but you really learn how to build characters and i think the reason why i've become good at dialogue is purely from that experience because i would also write against writers that were much better than myself confessionally like you know I was a kid writing with adults who really knew how to write and like having ways to develop or challenge my characters because I would role play as those characters so I would play with other people and discover things about my characters that made them so deep like I think a lot of my OCs have so much depth to them because I had to on those forums build out so many possibilities that you know when you just build a story flat and straightforward you're not even considering like the mundane of like how does my character make breakfast like what do they have for breakfast sure. how do they interact if they get rudely bumped into at the library <laughs> like very yeah, mundane I, things I, I don't i don't think people realize um how similarly developing a character and world building is to like making like a dnd character like like yeah. figuring mm -hmm. out um like just doing the small amount of work that goes into like 
you know what what's their history you know like what what's their backstory what's like like a catchphrase that they say like what's their weakness but like do like coming doing a small like worksheet almost of of character quirks goes so far into developing your little guy and uh and and i think that a lot of people's character building it's quickly revealed that they don't have the character that thought out when you ask like a simple question like you know like where where they where'd they go to school or you know whatever it is for sure and i think that that is something uh that that's why i get a little frustrated i guess at the pitching process because there is this idea of like just pitch me another idea and i'm like i don't think you understand that the idea i just pitched you is something that i've been like building for years like you're getting and i think this is actually a problem between artists and animation people and writers from the other side you know other side of the pond uh now some of those writers are super nerds and did the same stuff so i'm not gonna like discount that but i think animation tends to attract people that are deep within their own personal worlds and we tend to explore one idea deeply and very expansively and then i think comedy writers uh, which is tend to be the people that sell shows in our industry they have like how about this how about this how about this because they're just thinking of bits they're thinking yeah. top level and we're thinking very deep level <laughs> um uh and i think that that is why sometimes animation artists struggle to sell shows um or struggle to get their kind of pitches more exciting to execs because execs are thinking top level they like to hear that yeah. log line they like to hear the yeah. the quick idea that gets someone to watch but artists are in our own head we've been drawing these characters for 10 years on our notebooks we know it so deeply that we don't know how to do top level as easily yeah most of us not i agree with this so much i feel there's definitely this thing where it's like you're we it's i i was i think it was in this um sage episode that i was t- talking about how like you have to like mourn your character a little bit if you pitch a show and then it doesn't go anywhere because like you because they're kind of like alive like for i don't know when you've lived with the character for such a long time they're like living little creatures and beings and you love them and then when somebody's like no they're not we're not going to offer them a home you're like oh my heart yeah i I think i think one of the number one things that um animators have trouble with pitching is they'll have this show that they've been thinking about for like 10 years and they'll go in and they'll pitch it and the executive will be like, this is great, but can we like change the main character to a female and can we change the name? And then the you just freeze and you're like, uh, no, you know, and, and that's, you know, a lot of where a lot of problems come from. It's so hard. Yeah, it's really hard because it's something that I feel like because the three of us have experienced pitching. You've you've pitched a bunch also, Lisa, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's like I've been trying to figure it out in the sense of like how do you go in the room and still look and feel confident but um are ready for your idea. Yeah. Like wh- how much do you know that you can keep or give up on i guess or like how how much do you need to have figured out and how much is like kind of like free form for the execs to kind of like play with because you do want to collaborate you don't want to be a brick wall and be like no this is it this is all or nothing kind of thing mm-hmm. it is such a t- like difficult balance that's so that's so interesting how how many ideas have you pitched uh like like in i don't know you don't have to say which companies but like have you pitched to like multiple different studios I have, I, so 
I have pitched one one idea the most, and I've pitched though about four or five ideas total, maybe six if you count like. So I've done like shorts and shorts programs and stuff too, but those are usually like one shot, and those are less fleshed out ideas. Where but, at? Where where did you do the shorts? I was part of the uh, second tier of the cartoon cartoons, so we'll oh, see. Oh heck yeah! heck yeah are you uh where are you at with it are you finished are you um so i submitted um the actual the animatic for it like not a full full animatic but like sort of like the beat boards for it oh heck yeah 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 they told me like if we get green lip for season two we'll let you know and then it's been like crossing fingers yeah Yeah. for that season two because i've been kind of sitting on it since january (laughs) but I think I was like overly enthusiastic and had time in between jobs. So I was just like, I'm just going to pump this out, which is a little bit also a problem that I have is I am a little uh, too enthusiastic. I guess we can call it neurodivergent. And (laughs) (laughs) I tend to, if someone says like, I want this thing from you, I tend to pull like an all nighter level sleepless nights, get it done in a week, you know, pump it out. And I'll send someone too much stuff. And that is something that through this career, I've had to learn to kind of tone down because it becomes off a little too enthusiastic. But it's definitely been a learning, you know, a a growing period for me where I'm like, not everyone's as excited as you are. (laughs) And not everyone's like pulling those 48 hour, like nonstop work days to get stuff in. But yeah, I mean, I think the pitching process for me is tough because I tend to feel it very emotionally and I had a manager that approached me about one of my ideas so I'll back up for a second so I pitched an idea once as my first try when I was early in the industry and kind of experimenting and I didn't know what I was doing I took like a class on pitching and developed the pitch there and I think I overcomplicated it and by the time I brought it to my first exec ever they were like this is cool this is a lot um come back to us in a few years so that was like a good learning uh lesson to learn um then I decided okay I'm just going to make animatics of my own ideas because that's kind of my comfort zone if I can put it out that's a lot easier for me so I made a few animatics for a pitch that I had kind of been brewing that was different from the one that I had pitched and uh got hit up by a management firm um to that were like we love this animatic we would love to represent you and help you pitch this. And I was like, I was just making this for myself. Sure. And they were extremely confident in the the idea and we pitched it everywhere. And actually we turned down a few smaller name studios because they were extremely confident that it was going to sell in the big name studios. It didn't. Um, And I think that ended up being kind of a blow for me. And I had to kind of regroup after a while because it was like, a tour yeah. of course we pitched like 20 places and that can be I kind of... see what what year was this on what, like uh 2020 2019 oh right so right before the pandemic yeah so it was when things were getting bought up and hot but it's i think confessionally i wasn't really a known entity and that was what the big mm. stopping point for the studios was for me is they were like we love the idea we love it so much the second part of it was it was a fantasy series and everyone wanted was buying DD. So every mm-hmm. studio had their fantasy idea and they were like, we don't want a fantasy idea. We'd love your second idea. 
So I got that a lot. Now, did it help me get a ton of work afterwards and help me propel me into directing? Absolutely. So it was mm -hmm. a huge benefit in that regard. It helped my career a lot. They were, but I was less experienced, you know, it's been four years now since then, four or five so, years. So this is something that doesn't get talked about as much. Yeah. The, the fact that sometimes pitching things can lead to other jobs that aren't the pitch. Would you mind talking about that? A little bit because this this is something that i've seen a bunch yes. like the mm -hmm. idea that you'll go in and then the studio will see you as someone that we should you know we, we should have this person at our studio working on something absolutely i mean i think it's extremely common and it's a great way to get work i mean even just get yourself well known at a studio that you work at it's still really helpful because it i think it separates you from just being a pencil which many artists are unfortunately seen by studio execs as, um, not even in like an offensive way, but just, you know, they hire so many people, it's hard to separate everyone. So when you go into a pitch room, they get to know you as a person and they get to know your ideas for the first time outside of the projects they already have. So all of a sudden they can start to identify you as a human being uh, with creativity. And I think that that helps you get recognized as someone that they want to work with and collaborate maybe in other roles outside of, you know, and again, like help you get those like directing jobs or, you know, work on a feature or, you know, whatever it is. So it's a great way to kind of help boost you within the executive minds. Cause even like, um, you might get asked to help do some freelance on a development project because they might want to see you in that leadership position and see how you do that. So I've also got an opportunity to just do like light development or work on pilots because of it. Because um, also they, one thing that was helpful for me is I started an adult that was like my break-in. Mm -hmm. And I would say I am not like an adult animation person. Like I, I grew up liking some adult animation like Futurama and stuff. But I my base was like anime and you know I, I liked feature as well so I felt like a little out of place like I wanted to work in that 8 to 12 section and all my pitches were 8 to 12 looking so mm -hmm. they also got to see that that was the art style I naturally draw in and they were like oh you are capable of drawing in this appealing way <laughs> you can work on these projects so it was also very helpful to show my range that you know, might not be exposed from my portfolio because I was working on indie projects of my own that showed I could do a different style than what the job required of me. How do you, how do you efficiently show your range? Because I do feel like a lot of artists are worried about being put like, like pigeonholed into a little box, you know, like, oh, you're, you only do animation, adult animation, and you only do storyboards, like, and you've managed to show that you can get out of that. How how do you kind of showcase all of that? I mean, it is, it is hard. I think you have to do a lot of pieces that are outside of your job. And that's mm. the unfortunate truth. I mean, I think you have to, and sometimes people can see your old artwork and see like, you know, if you just do character design or, or sketches, sometimes that's alone uh, enough for them to see your range. But really doing indie boards for me was the most helpful. I would just do personal projects. I'm tired and I don't do them as much anymore, but they were very helpful for me transitioning from my current job and, or my, my job in adult. And truthfully, like now I've worked in such a range, 
studios still don't know what to do with me all the time. I still am a little bit of enigma. They're like, you worked on this and this and this and what? Like, how are you doing all these things? And it's, I think there's a little uh, skepticism that artists have range. And I think yeah. you'll always be fighting that. Yeah. Um, I literally got told by a project. So before before uh, um, my last few projects, I worked on like a classic Disney-esque feature, you know, like that kind of artistic style. I was talking to someone that was hiring for a more recent feature and they said to me, don't you only do anime? And I was like, well, I I did just work on an anime leaning project, but I, I can show you my boards from a literal like Disney-esque feature, the completely different. <laughs> and, you know, it just was one of those funny things where sometimes people will just write you off by the most recent project you did. And that is a yeah. struggle. Uh, I, I won't deny that it's just, it's hard to get out of that box. Um, but also, yeah, when you do do the personal projects, they can't just be a personal project. They have to be in the style that you're aiming for as well. And also connect with the people in those projects. I reached out and tried to learn the art styles of those projects too, that I wanted to work in um, versus like, I think sometimes people do have a hard time breaking out because their art style, they lean too much into the seat of what they do know. Like they are too comfortable now with like the adult style or the comedy style or the feature style and they don't know how to break out. And I do see that sometimes with people who do want to break out but don't have the range in their personal work anymore because they've been so trained. It's hard. That is so true. I feel like the the reality, I think that's, you're touching on something that is so true is that as when you start being a professional and you get in this network and you start drawing in the style and then you keep being put on all these productions with the same people, that is both great, but also, yeah, ends up kind of like putting you in the little box of like, okay, yes, you do all the Bob Burgers looking productions or like <laughs> you do all of the like, I don't know, like wacky cartoon productions, you know, it's gonna, and it's, and it's hard to, you know, after work, be, like, if you want to break out of a specific style after work being like, okay, I'm going to specifically draw something that is not that in, in order to get closer yeah. to them. Uh, Lisa, how did you get the motivation and like the energy to work on your personal animatics because it sounds like you did like three or four of them and can you describe them a little bit like were they kind of just like 30 seconds like a couple minutes were they like a full short like what was your process for each of these um and where did you post them was it like youtube vimeo like kind of like how like give us a little bit of a, an idea what how you went about them yeah um so i first posted them on x <laughs> so oh okay directly yeah yeah I would, I would post them and i would post little bites of them and then i think i hosted them on vimeo and then i would put them on my website um so yeah i mean i think it was also a way to push what i wanted to do with storyboards but so i also write a lot on my downtime and a lot of them are actually i would say the cold open to scripts um and that was the majority of the shorts I did was just taking the cold open of a, a script I wrote uh, and converting it into a scene. Um, so that was really easy for me because I was like, I already know what I want to do. Classes are very helpful too. Um, one of them, I kind of, uh, my longest one, and I think the one I'm most known for on the internet, if you will, 
is this piece called um, the Father Daughter Dance, and that was how I got my first feature role. Actually, was the producers saw it online on LinkedIn. I posted it on LinkedIn, and they said we found your animatic on LinkedIn, and we loved it, and they hired me off of it. Um, and that one was, I think, about three or four minutes. I have to double check, maybe eight, around the three minutes. Um, and that was to a musical piece. And I had the middle school idea I talked about at the beginning of this. It's from that. And it's one of the climaxes of that story. Uh, and so it was like, I knew that scene. And I was, I said to myself, I was like, I could spend years making the graphic novel or hosting it on Webtoons. Or I can just board out the scene that I know I've wanted to draw my whole life and just kind of get it out of my system. So <laughs> the energy for me and the impetus for me is like an obsessive need to get my stories out there. Mm -hmm. And it kind of triumphs over the tiredness because I think I get drained at sometimes the jobs where I feel I'm not listened to yes. or the jobs that maybe I don't like the content of or struggle with the content. I was very motivated and inspired to get out of that. So when I'm happy at work, I'm less productive on my own stuff. When I'm unhappy at work, I'm very productive. It's a sad truth. <laughs> I've noticed that too. Sean, have you also seen that in your career? Because yeah. I've definitely seen that. Isn't yeah, that so sure. crazy? Like, oh my gosh. I even remember telling the showrunner this. We were like walking to like 7-Eleven or something and I was like, I'm so happy on the show. I don't feel like I need to draw personal art right now. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, Spider-Man, I didn't work on any of my personal stuff, which is <laughs> the how fun that show was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it usually depends on the show, but uh, yeah, for sure, I've, I've had it both ways. That's so interesting. I That is so cool though, that like, I love that you posted the animatic itself on LinkedIn and that goes to show everybody do not overlook the power of linkedin users <laughs> and recruiters love linkedin this is this is top tier yeah. advice social media is for artists yes recruiters will be on social media they'll find you on instagram uh, there are recruiters on instagram and tiktok um but i find linkedin is for producers for sort of more right brain that's right brain is the technical side right i'm forgetting which one's left tech I... whatever <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, I believe you. Everybody in the comment, let us know if right brain is the creative side oh, or the, the trouble. I don't remember which one's which. It's a, it's a dumb stereotype anyway. But it's <laughs> people that are are I think less focused on seeing, you know, looking for resumes, looking for people to hire. They're going to be on LinkedIn and they're not looking for the social media hot takes, if you will. They're looking very professional. Yeah, they're all on LinkedIn. Um. I think art directors and directors and creative people are going to find you on the social media because they like to see more of your personality. They like to see your artwork. They tend to lurk there more. So I would say, you know, both are advantageous and you get different reactions from, from either or. I also think that um, LinkedIn is a great place to keep as a portfolio to curate as a portfolio so you can't keep your social media like like the rest of your social media a little bit looser i think that's so cool and and that also i i had this thought because you're talking about how when you started pitching one of the things that you kind of ran into was that people were like well we 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 don't like know you enough or like you don't have a name yet blah 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 and i feel like on linkedin 
it's true that producers are going to be looking at like, oh, do you have like 20 plus years experience? Have you been a supervising director prior, et cetera, et cetera? Like people are definitely looking at like uh, profiles on LinkedIn in, in that very specific way. Um, that's very interesting. Yeah, but I mean, you're saying I it's not going to be a followers as much. Is that is that what you're saying, B? Yeah, what I'm saying is that like they're looking like the algorithm will bring people to recruiters and producers differently than on social media. You know what I mean? Like the algorithm is going to be like, oh, how long have have you been working in the industry, kind of thing. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't know. It's just a thought. It's half baked. <laughs> I mean, I think that that's super true. I think on LinkedIn, they look more at your resume and yeah. on other social media platforms, they're going to look at more of your following or, you know, other mm. aspects of you. So I think there is definitely value to both in different reasons. Like, um, I mean, I will say like it, my first, first feature job, I already had experience um, even directing prior. Mm -hmm. So it was like, I sure they looked at my resume afterwards and said oh you worked at this studio you worked at this studio you had this experience it wasn't just like flat out we're gonna hire you for this job and i think that that's also something um that's important to keep in mind is these are great jump starts but you're not gonna get your show off of it but you'll get other opportunities and i think going in and and knowing that and being comfortable with that like studios are looking for that level of experience in your work not just your work so it, it it is like you need both which mm -hmm. it sucks but you can boost one with the other and vice versa for sure yeah i think okay what's really cool is that you were talking about how you got your first break in animation in an adult show and i kind of want to take us all the way back to university like college like did you did you study art so i i, I wanted to my parents did not want me to get an art degree. So it was a big, so I got like this weird degree where I got to do art, but I also had to study other more practical career options, uh, specifically computer engineering. <laughs> so basically my parents were like, we're not helping you with college at all. If you want to pursue art, they were like, this is, you know, we're not going to have a destitute artist child on our hands. We love that you want to do art, but you have to have a backup career and your grades are too good, <laughs> which is, is a kind of weird backhanded compliment from my parents where they're like, you, um, art, art school is for, you know, kids with yeah. bad grades. <laughs> but I, so I did this like degree where I actually went to this like kind of tech art program. It's, it's a really cool program. And I would make like these animated projects that you can interact with, basically kind of pseudo games, but a little bit more art projecty. And that was kind of like I wanted to make stuff like that. And then the problem I found out very quickly is there was no, there's no job market for anything like interactive stories that kind of are are animated projects that you would interact with. Like it was very experimental and arty. And so my choices were tech field, pretty much. And I I knew that I wanted to be in animation or games. Those were like kind of my two passion points. So I took a job and I was producing, I was doing um, assistant producing for games at Scholastic. That was my first job out of school. And it was cool, but I was doing a lot of like documenting, like I would do like these like docs and I would do write-ups and I 
wanted to be writing or drawing. I wanted to be in those kind of subsets and I didn't want to be in production. I, you know, I think that's a pretty common story as first people's job in these fields is you get into production. But I was in New York. My parents didn't want me to move away from New York. So I eventually was trying to figure stuff out and I had a teacher in school so this is a little back before I got that first job who introduced me to what storyboarding was. And he was like, you like to write, you like to draw. This is what you should be doing. And I took that class and I was like, light turned on. This is what I want to be doing. And he broke his arm and needed someone to fill in for him. So he was like, I'll give you your first few opportunities and you can help me in the advertising world doing basic storyboarding. And so I was able to get some freelance work through him doing storyboarding for advertising. Um, but it wasn't animation. It wasn't what I wanted to be doing. So while advertising was okay, I was just kind of like, okay, I'm doing this freelance advertising work. I'm doing a production job that's not making me happy. And I was looking in New York and I was like, I can't find anything except for this kind of work. So I decided <laughs> whatever money I had, I was moving out to LA and not telling my parents. Oh! <laughs> and I did that and it was crazy and I had very little money and I was, I took, I had a couple freelance jobs still from New York that I was able to use to pay rent basically. And I took a CDA class and off of the boards I made in the CDA class, I got very lucky and got my first job. Whoa. Wow. That is so cool, dude. That is so cool and inspiring too. Wow. You don't have to do it the traditional way, but I do recommend classes like CDA because I took that class and I was like, oh, advertising boards are not going to get me a job in this industry because I was using my portfolio as advertising style boards. <laughs> so they were completely yeah. out of the realm of what I needed to be doing. And there wasn't the resources on the internet like there is right now. How would you describe the main differences between advertising boards and TV boards or like animation boards? Advertising boards are beat boards. They're kind of fully rendered. They're meant to kind of set up the staging more for a live action shot. So also mm -hmm. you don't have to have necessarily as precise layout as like what's common now in, in 2D boards. And it's less about like animated movement because the actors are going to do that. So it's really about setting up the lighting. It's, it's letting the production know what they need to buy basically. I see. Yeah. So when a producer looks at the boards, they're going, okay, we need this kind of lighting. We need this kind of set. We need this costume for this actor. So it's, it's actually like helping them figure out those kind of um, budgetary concerns, which, you know, is a part of animation as well, but it's not kind of as essential as what it is in live action. So mm -hmm. for advertising, and also I did a lot of boards that kind of would sell ideas. So you'd be like, this is the general idea of what the ad's going to look like. And you would pitch that to an executive, not unlike animation, but it could be very high concept where you're like, we go from this shot and then we go to this shot. It was like single shots. They didn't really move. They were very illustrative. Um, and that was actually uh, the criticism I would get when I first went to like CTN and stuff was they're like, your stuff's too rendered. And I didn't know what that meant at the time because I didn't I ne I'd never seen tv boards apart from like the very few like beauty and the beast boards like that's mm -hmm. all you could find online yeah. when I was still like applying for stuff so I was like I think this is what I'm supposed to do <laughs> I had no idea you're like what do you mean my drawings are really good and finished why is that bad <laughs> yeah <laughs>
So it, it, it definitely helped. And, and I, I really appreciated like CDA or places like that. And I, it's why I'm a big advocate of, I've said this on a few podcasts now, but I'm a big advocate of, of CDA and these classes and stuff because no one's going to tell you what's wrong with your portfolio like a class will. Um, and you'll find out the fastest of what you need to do and how you need to improve. And you'll meet a lot of people that are doing the same thing or want to do the same thing as you. So it's a great way to, to meet people especially when you move out to a new city and you know no one which is what happened to me moving to LA where I was like I have no friends how long did it take you to find like a new circle of friends and to feel like comfortable in the city I mean I think it I I was lucky so I went to CTN and it's so funny um I would not consider myself a social person but I would wait on lines getting waiting for my portfolio to get reviewed so I'd start talking to the other students in law and I made a few friends through there and there's still people I talk to out here um which is quite cool like I I knew them and I kind of reached out and I, I would get lunch with them on occasion and they were really nice and supportive and it was a different range of people that I met like so some you know were a bunch of students from this one school actually I met CDA students there and that was how I was able to learn about CDA um I don't know if you know Lorraine Great by chance, but I, I love Lorraine. Lorraine was one of the first people I met out here and she was super helpful and nice and, and taught me taught me about C, C, CDA because I had no idea where to even take classes. She was a student there at the time. That is um, so cool. Yeah, it, so that really helped. And I mean, I think still it was like kind of people that I touched base with very once one time because I, I came out and then it was kind of like I disappeared and then... Um, it's been cool to like reconnect with people after all these years. I think it took my first production really for me to sort to meet and befriend people in this industry and disenchantment a lot. We had a lot of young people on the production who this was their first job. Like we had a, a swell of that on that production. So we all kind of came up together and that was really nice. And I think that that I would like um, hang out a lot with the designers and the painters because um, the board artists were older um, but a lot of the design team was younger so I'd hang out with the design team um, and I would just kind of lay on the floor there sometimes after lunch <laughs> it was like a, a kind of rough draft is kind of a weird studio so how would you okay that's really interesting because we haven't really had anybody from rough draft on the podcast so <laughs> how would you kind of describe the vibe of rough draft <laughs> so rough draft is um a smaller studio it, it definitely has you know the studio had you get to know more it's it's more intimate it also is kind of they they want you to kind of stay there for your whole career if they really like you and kind of work your way there so it's less there's kind of the opportunity to stay there and it's almost like more of a traditional company like back in the day where you kind of you work there and you work there for life and you mm -hmm. raise your family there um and there's not as many opportunities to bounce around i think with other studios there's kind of it's kind of the callousness it's 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 a positive mm -hmm. and negative because on at rough draft you're kind of part of this very tight family kind of unit there was a lot of chastising in some capacity if you like take a long lunch or you kind of abuse the system there's this kind of expectation that you're loyal to them um we're on the opposite end major studio houses they'll drop you as soon as the production's over and 
say goodbye. So there's there's positives and negatives to it for sure. It's its own unique kind of space. Um, but again, I think it was a great space to make friends. Like they have a ton of dogs there, which is really cool. Oh, that's so cute. I yeah. love that you have dogs in house. Um, and and I did have like great mentors there. Um, I think that they they take mentorship there very seriously, but it's it's a unique unique place it's definitely different from any other studio and and definitely feels like a very different kind of space than any other studio mm. yeah because it's true when you work in like studios like um like nickelodeon cartoon network disney like they're big they have like a ton of employees and uh, even netflix and you and you feel like um yeah it's a little bit more like project base and it's not so much like oh we're gonna try to retain all of the employees and that's just a philosophy it's a philosophy for companies in general like um i don't know i feel like when someone's just like trying to interview at a new company or job that's can be part of the questions to ask is like how how long other employees have been around and stuff like that because that kind of gives you an idea like oh is this somewhere where, where i'm just gonna like hang out and like raise a family and stuff because that's part of like you know plans for like a, a life right like if you're somebody who's like okay in five years i kind of want to have a family that those are kind of questions you want to ask in interviews to kind of figure that out i think for me it was a it's kind of complicated because i think it's something that maybe I would have wanted later in my career, but not at the beginning. Like I really wanted to stretch my wings and I wanted to explore other places. I wanted to try other productions. I mean, I think I still had different priorities when I was first starting out that, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, like I, I, I didn't want the security at the beginning of my career. You know, as you get older, you absolutely want the security, but I think just kind of staying on one production for the rest of your life, like that didn't sound ideal to me at the time, even though I think that they really liked me and they really wanted me to stay. It was, it was very hard for me to make that choice. Like I, I definitely was like, I didn't want to let them down, but I was very much like, and I know people that are, you know, I started with that are still there, that that was their one job in animation and they've stayed there their whole career. Where for me, I was like, I really wanted to spread my wings and um, try other studios. And, and I think that there are, positives and negatives to both choices um I I think for me I was I think I've always been relatively ambitious and and I think I couldn't have that there because it would just be working on disenchantment for you know till yeah. six years and again I as much as one thing that I think that they liked about my portfolio was this kind of feature geared and they told me that they liked that I, my stuff was very cinematic um and I think disenchantment was trying to be more cinematic than the average adult show but then i was finding i was getting adult programs um that i didn't want as much you know it was like i was like oh but this is not common to have like a cinematic adult show and now that's changing i mean most adult shows now are actually more action focused or we have scavengers rain or completely different shows but at the time it, it felt like everything was gonna be like flat like bounce burgers and i was like well that's not the camera work I want to be doing. <laughs> so um, yeah. that was also like, I kind of needed, felt I needed to get out of the adult before it became my whole life. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like um, there's a couple of like shows that kind of break that pattern, but it's true that most adult is very like sitcom type of um, of staging. 
Yeah, and and I think for me, I, I like to do things that are more experimental with the camera. That is definitely, if I had like one common thread in my work, it's like I like to do a lot of stuff with cameras. So <laughs> it would have been a little too restrictive for me. Even though I like doing acting and other stuff too, it wasn't like my my priority. <laughs> mm -hmm. That is so cool. That is such a cool origin story too. <laughs> <laughs> How you like origin story? <laughs> well, I I think I think there's interesting comparing, like the different types of studios and and like how there's multiple different avenues someone can go down. You know, there there are certain places where you can get set up for a sort of a long term career at the same place and settle down, and and it's possible to do that, or there are places where you can go and you skip around between production and production and you know yeah for sure I mean I think um that's even true about certain productions too like even at a place like Nick like if you're going on to maybe say I guess it's not as true anymore but like maybe more of a Spongebob production or you know Big Nate is a little bit more stable like there's certain shows that have stability where even if they don't sound maybe to an audi audience member, the most exciting production to be on, sure. it's going to be maybe where you're the happiest and it might yes. be the place where you're most stable. And I think sometimes audiences don't realize like, how do you want to work on XYZ show? Not to bad enough. And it's, be you know, it's because that show is, is a really comfortable. It's more of a nine to five job and people have families and they want to choose a job that has that stability. And as you get older and your priorities change, that becomes more of a reality because you kind of the glow and sheen of like exciting projects kind of rub off and you're like, okay, but like I need health insurance and the ability to pay my rent consistently. And so I think those realities change and you start to pick different priorities in life. And I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, but it's harder to explain to like fans yeah. of animation. It's also something that I, I was just talking to a buddy of mine about, like, because he, he's like 10 years older than me. And he was like, yeah, I got to start thinking about my retirement. And I was like, oh, like the kind of thing that you never think about when you're 20, right? You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You want to have these good um, benefits, these plans at some point. I feel like, I feel like we have a ton of questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> let's get into some of those because um so this is kind of interesting from our patron joe benson hi joe he's been with us for a while and it's a kind of an interesting question because i because it kind of because it's you know how adult shows are like called adult and there's like some stuff like there's some boundaries like even though they're adult there's still some boundaries that you can't cross so he asks, um, might be inappropriate or immature, but why is it that on HBO Max's Harley Quinn, they show so much violence and gore, and yet showing actual nudity gets censored? Were there ever discussions about it in the writer's room or the art department? I think that is more of an American thing. <laughs> mm. Nudity in America is more censored because of puritanical reasons. <laughs> um where blood and gore is more excuse uh video games rate it and it's it's really down to the rating system it's nc-17 that's what happens is it goes into the pornographic territory so you have to be very careful about nudity that that kind of the bare ones we didn't have a lot of discussions about it and honestly i think probably the censoring happened after the platform um that might have even been changes because 
Like, one of the discussions and big design challenges we had was, and you may censor me for saying it, but the penis room. Uh, <laughs> giant guy who has marble statues dedicated to his body part. Uh-huh. And I had a friend who had to design that whole room and draw all of those penises. Because it would be like statue upon statue. And I don't think we had any conversations about censorship there. That's there. so interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's like Hmm. that's the hack you just have to have everyone transform into a statue just for that frame that you show the nudity <laughs> you just have to have medusa come in she comes in real quick <laughs> freeze you into a statue and then she looks away i guess if it's yeah if it's a statue or an object it's okay but if it's an actual body it's like it's real but even then like we had like some risque like sex things in it too like um i and i think they were taken out at some point by executives i was not in those conversations because i was you know a board artist at the time so i was not at the higher levels Mm. of the production so i couldn't answer those sort of questions but yeah they were i would say they were more yeah they i don't know (laughs) this is my real answers i don't know because we had like i think a scene that was got got taken out and it was in season one so it was a long time ago but I, we were in when you go into harley and is mind palace and like the characters are touring like there was a scene of harley dressed as batman having sex with joker and like that was one of the vignettes and they took it out and we were all really bummed because it was very funny because <laughs> it was revealing about you know the joker's preferences uh, yes that's so funny i love that the thing about yeah batman and the joker otp I, I heavily support it, and I think it's, I, I think they still kind of suggested, but it was definitely downplayed a lot more than what we originally <laughs> It's pretty much the original boards, and it was very crowded. I was like, oh my god. <laughs> it's and- crazy. Like, I feel like there's some shows, it's funny too, so I don't know how the scripts were for you, but when I worked on Captain Fall, some of the scripts that we got were like very explicit and we <laughs> read the words and I was like, oh, okay, just to mean that we have to draw every single of these words on there. And then eventually it had to be censored in a, um, I guess, smart way, in a clever way where like you have plants or uh, overlays to to hide the, the the parts but it's it's kind of funny how the scripts can be pretty crude and then <laughs> you know yeah I, I think it's executives and studios kind of take a look at it and judge I, I don't know um but yeah it, the scripts themselves I mean so rough draft one of the productions they made and younger people will not know about this show oh god I have to remember the name of the show maybe you guys can help me it was a re- a parody of reality TV with super oh, drawn together, drawn together. And so I worked with people who had worked on Drawn Together. Wow, that is so cool! I actually really like that show. <laughs> I've also worked with people from Drawn Together. That's funny. Oh, man. I was told some stories about how they couldn't tell their families. I I was working with a guy who came from like a very Catholic. <laughs> um, and he was like I could not tell my mom what I was working on I had to make up what show I was working on because I was terrified of her finding it <laughs> and like I mean Drawn Together was very risque in humor and tone and so I've yeah. heard some stories of what the challenges of working on that was like <laughs> it's, that's true it's funny because I don't 
have a memory of it being so overly sexual, but also I watched it when I was in my early 20s and I was watching, and South Park is very, I don't know. It's also, I was watching all these shows. It's kind of South in that Park's same range. some stuff in there, yeah. That's... Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's so funny, but I totally understand though. Like, yeah, like if you, <laughs> if you have a very religious family, you don't want them to find out. That would be a funny, um, pitch origin story like I, I started making up the show that i was working on yeah. for my parents and then i started just like developing it out and like then i started pitching that show around you know? yeah, make it happen just so the lie would never be found out it's a lie yeah. it's so funny. now i'm the 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 create they're like how did you become the creator of the show you work on how did you do it that's incredible that i love that so <laughs> this is such an anime this is like death note level of like my 3d four chess uh like uh 3d chess 4d chess thing i don't know it's so funny Are <laughs> right. well we kind of answered the half of the question from our patron puzzle gum who asked where did you get the idea for your graphic novel so you're talking about um how something that you were thinking up in college but I like that second part where he goes, and how did you know it would it should be made in the medium of comics and not something else? That's that's a, that is a really good question, and I think there's an aspect to the first half that I can answer a little bit quickly, which was it, it was based on a friendship breakup. That's sort of the story of what the comics about, and I think that that was really interesting to publishers too, um, because a lot of the plots they had seen before and this one was sort of unique to them it was something that kind of was told and for me it was like a very big tragedy in my life it happened in middle school mm -hmm. and it was my friend moved away so it was a little different of how I told the story but so that's a little bit of how I came up is it was me processing these feelings of this friend I dearly missed and and was trying to reconcile how do you break up or come to terms with a person you can't because they literally physically weren't there anymore for you to hash it out with and that's something that kind of I hashed out in my comic. So that was sort of where the origin point for it came from. And what helped in terms of bringing that to a graphic novel is it's a very finite story for me, is even though the original way I just developed the story was more episodic, like it, it, there's sort of the two main characters are demon hunters who are best friends. And I'm, rather than it being the origin point of how they became demon hunters, it's about how... Um, they've already been doing it their whole life so they're used to it and it's like about the drama the interpersonal drama between them and how the demons they're fighting kind of mirror what's going on in their situation because the demons are manifestations of suppressed emotion mm -hmm. <laughs> so all the fights and battles they have are with suppressed emotions of other people but it's of course wink nod it's what they're going through so i felt like though it was episodic there was a clear point to end a novel with um, so it made sense for me to be able to adapt it into sort of like, it was the first season arc of a show, but for me, it felt very finite for the book where I was like, I know where I'm starting the story and where it's ending. And though graphic novels can be continuous and you can do multiple volumes, the story for me was one that I felt like I didn't want to commit to more books for this one. I wanted to be like, it's one book and it's out. The story is done and it can continue. There's space for it to continue, but I, there's a, Act one, act two, act three, and it's done. And that was part of the reason why. Also, I mean, it's can it was able to be adapted to middle grade, which was more popular in 
graphic novels and publishing at the time. So that was part of the reason my agent and I went with this one. I have more adult stories. My middle school idea that I came up with in middle school has become a very adult topic. So it's one I would love to do, but adult is much harder to sell without a name. So it's one of those cases where um, middle graders are easy to sell. <laughs> so there's some realities that sometimes it's about the market and what your agent wants to pick, bring to the market, but it's a story about middle schoolers and dealing with their middle school stuff. And I think also publishing allows for things that TV doesn't. It allowed me to be more serious with the story and be less um, commercial, mm -hmm. which is really fun, is in the graphic novel space, I could be serious. Part of the pitch was saying, these friends have a breakup and it's messy and it's dirty and it's complicated and they fight and it's not happy all the time. Like there's comedy in it, there's action in it, but I was able to be serious. And I think publishing likes artists, mm -hmm. you know, how I was talking about earlier, um, just to interject about how artists struggle with pitching to TV execs because we are very deep level. Publishing mm -hmm. actually loves that. Publishing is our friends and that they love a deep dive story where you know all the pieces and you know all the acts and you know all the characters. They love that you can tell that whole comprehensive story. So publishing for me, I find really easy to pitch in. It feels like it's like a marriage made in heaven for me because I get to write out everything. I don't have to be loud and, and personality in front of exec and memorize a, a thing that I have to read out and act like <laughs> I came off the top of my head. I can just send them a document that I took time to write out that's comprehensive and tells the whole story. And they go, we like it. And I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> I yeah. wish was like this. So that's part of the reason too, is I find the type of writer I am to be easier to sell to publishing because I'm more of a serious person in my storytelling. I think I am comedic, but I think I have a hard time communicating that in a pitching room. And that's something also I'm working on where I'm like, okay, let's bring some levity to this. Stop talking about the deep <laughs> emotional trauma that you're trying to detangle. <laughs> well, I, I, th I think that there's some people that are really good at like having a serious story with comedic moments. And then there's some people that have a comedic story with, you know, comedic moments and a few serious moments you sound like a little bit more of the serious story and then you have some moments of levity and like a comedic relief kind of situation absolutely yeah i think um and i think that that is a harder sell in general in tv I, especially when animation still at the time was more for kids they were like there's a lot of trauma like when's like the when am i getting a laugh in here and i'm like it's in there it's just you're asking for the top level story and the top level stories, the trauma, yes, we need to talk about. Um, and then I forget that that's not what they actually are asking when they ask yeah. for your life story. I'm trying. I'm trying to show you all the themes and all of the, like the main things we're talking about. It's so true. I feel like you have to hide it all under the comedy. Like you, you. It's so, it's so interesting because I do feel like in animation, people can get scared pretty fast if it's too heavy or or dark or like like deep so you i feel like you yeah you have to kind of like lead with the comedy and then um i don't know it's very interesting but it's very true what you're saying and i think it's so interesting that you talk about like you're more of like i write it all down and i send it out to publisher rather than doing the little song and dance because the song and dance is so hard <laughs> if you're not a comedian it's gosh dang it's really hard 
it's it's very hard and and again like i think i i overcomplicate things which has been like an, an interesting thing that kind of um to know about myself like i think many artists struggle with this too is again it's that top level you're you're talking from a place where you know your story intimately and you have to know how to talk to someone who's never heard it for the first time and engage them and one thing that I have done throughout my life is I've actually done like improv comedy which I know I don't seem like the type but it's been <laughs> uh something that has helped me a lot in beating back stage fright because I used to be a very mm. very anxious kid and I think I got better at talking to strangers because I would push myself into awkward situations by doing improv it pushed me to be a less self-serious person mm -hmm. I 100% agree improv like just taking a single class has like taught me so much about how to make a scene work character work how characters interact with each other listening to a character knowing how there can be conflict without characters having to yell at each other you know what I mean without getting in a confrontation because I think that's something that I've always, I don't know if you felt that, but like reading a lot of these writing books, it always feels like, oh, well, people have to start arguing, you know, because you talk about conflict, but conflict does not have to be people arguing. <laughs> it can be so many other things. It can be just something that a character has to do, but they just don't want to do it because they're uncomfortable with it. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's really, um, I think that's really interesting. We have a lot of questions from Twitter. Um, we have a question from at 38 underscore underscore SR, which is Lee Cree, who was a guest on this podcast before. Lee asks, now that you've been a director, has that changed your relationship with creating in general? I hear that directors don't get to draw or create for themselves that much. So I was wondering if that was true for you. I would say maybe not so much with myself but my relationship with the industry and the relationship I have with boarding is very different since I directed. It's the most learning how the sausage is made. Directing and upper management positions, not just in terms of drawing, but in terms of, it's a bureaucratic position and fully understanding that is hard until you're really in it. Mm. You know so much more of what's going on behind the scenes. You know so much more about how money is being allocated and in what way you hear people talk about other people, which is <gasps> very, very hard, honestly, for me um, to deal with because it's, it's very, it can be very like harsh. It can be very frank where you're, you know, all of a sudden you're hearing, you know, you have to think about the production and you have to think very logically about the production. So your relationship is not drawing anymore. Your relationship is about the production. Um, so while there are creative decisions that are made in a directing role, it's it's a bureaucratic role. It's a, it's a corporate role. Mm -hmm. And I think, especially for TV, I should say, directing for film and feature has a different flavor. And then that's closer to an EP role, actually. But mm -hmm. for directing, I find that it is much more about people management. The creative part that is really cool for me in directing is you get to see an episode as a whole and you get to see and in interpret and infer the story a lot more. I mean, I think it also depends on the production. I've directed on a few productions now. And one thing that Lee knows me from is Spider-Man. So hi, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> um, is Spider-Man, we had an EP and writers that were very communicative about our freedom. 
on other productions, I was not given the same freedoms. Um, and we were very fortunate because I could talk with our writing team and our uh, executive team about like, hey, this story point, like, what's the gist here? Can I move some scenes around? Can I rewrite some stuff? And and there was that flexibility to kind of collaborate with the writing team to make the show better. And that was awesome. And I love that part of directing. And actually, I feel extremely stifled when I go back to boarding because I feel like I don't have those opportunities again. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's where the relationship I've had with storybooking has changed is now I know what the director does and changes and manages and I'm hungry to do that all it's like it's it's so creatively satisfying actually it's tough it's exhausting and I think when you do care about the show you're working on like I'll confess I wanted to work on Spider-Man all the time I actually had to restrict myself from working on it because I loved it I I genuinely loved working on that show and I wanted to work stupid hours on it like it was not like the studio pressuring me and it's actually something you have to restrict yourself from doing because and I was very adamant about my board just restricting themselves from working too many hours because it it when you are in the director's seat all of a sudden the episode becomes yours you become so passionate about making it the best it can be and you Mm -hmm. care even more than just working on your scene because you're taking all the different scenes and you're figuring out how to put them together and you're figuring out how the story works and it becomes so much more of a, for me, a narrative role. And I really liked that. I feel like sometimes I do miss, I did miss the drawing and that's where I would take a scene here or there. Especially I take scenes for me when I know exactly how I want it to look and I don't want a board artist to do all the work and I'm going to change it. That's my one rule for myself. I will never try to make a board artist imagine what's in my head I'm either going to work with what they gave me and it's theirs and I want to keep it as much theirs while incorporating in the story or I'll do it myself because I have had leadership that has it in their head and wants to see my first pass before they do it and I can feel the difference now and it's very clear the difference and I much more prefer either being in a place where Management is working with me collaboratively to make sure my idea matches what the show wants, what they are looking for in the episode, but it's still my ideas rather than people that like to micromanage. Um, And so I, as a director, I try to do the same when I work with the team. Um, So again, it changes that relationship a lot, but yeah, you, you don't draw as much. So you have to kind of also get used to being hands off, but some directors still put their hands in everything. (laughs) It's a person, it's sometimes as a personal preference too. Um, but you learn that your time can be more wisely used if you aren't drawing all the time. And that's kind of a lesson of growth, personally. Yeah, that is true. I I, I relate to that a lot because I the first show I directed on, I was told by a supervising director um, to not storyboard or like, you know, please don't storyboard because we need you available just in case like the shit hits the fan and we want you to just fix all the things and you can't do that if you're storyboarding on a sequence yeah that's really interesting that's such a good um analysis and um good take on what directing is because i do feel like directing can easily be uh misunderstood as um something either too more creative than it is or i i do think there's like a lot of um middle management and corporate like you said 
Yeah. And if you're not, it's not for the faint of heart in some capacities. As I said, when I mean talking about people, it's, it's that it's about like, Hey, this, this is enough to snuff and we need to change it. And blah, blah, blah. like it gets, it can get a little tense and you know, it's, it's yeah. complicated emotionally. Yeah. Like this person's fucking up the flow, like, and they're not cooperating like that sort of stuff. Yeah. And you have to be the one to talk to them because you're their manager. So sometimes, you know, you have to have those tough conversations with people. You have to know how to work with people's idiosyncrasies and you also have to be empathetic to people um and finding that balance is is a hard thing that i think gets overlooked um to do well because it's it's very important to do in my opinion well but not everyone is given the tools and certainly one thing that you'll learn when you direct is you were put in a room and they go go and you go what do you mean go <laughs> and you're given no tools you have to figure yeah. out what the director does um at my first job, I had no idea what I was supposed to be doing. And then I learned and I asked around, ask your friends when you get that first position, ask everyone. I sat down with so many directors. I sat down with so many supervisors being like, what is this job? My supervisor's too busy. He can't talk to me. He said he's too busy. I need someone to tell me what I should be doing. <laughs> that is so true. I do feel like, oh my God, what you're uh, bringing up right now is so true because I have been in a situation of like, we, we always tend to look up to our boss and to be like well our boss is the one i should be getting the answers from but then sometimes we forget no you can ask your peers because chances are as a director there's probably another director or two other directors on the show and you can ask the, like these other directors like hey how do you go about it can we can we meet up can we get lunch can we like get coffee over zoom or whatever because they might have prior rapport with the supervising director. They might know the EP and they might know how the EP thinks and works. And you can get that information from not the EP, but from somebody who's worked with them. And that's something that I never really thought of yeah. before. It's so important to know that because it's because people are so different. <laughs> I think I yeah. think that goes for most animation jobs. And that's also I think people are very scared of asking questions because it mm -hmm. makes them feel uh, they're worried that everyone's going to realize they're a fraud uh -huh. <laughs> and that they don't belong there. But almost every storyboarding job I've ever started at, I, at the beginning, I probably asked too many questions. I'm like, what kind of scenes don't you like? Uh, how, how much is adding too much or how much changing the script can I do? What, what's okay? You know, what level of clean do you like on this show? And I think that what you're talking about is, is probably, it's probably even more questions because <laughs> every directing job is probably different. Yeah. I mean, even, I think that's also one thing that changed my relationship to storyboarding is I got less scared of that. Cause I used to be very scared of that imposter syndrome of starting a board yeah. job and being like, Oh God, they're going to know I'm a fraud. And listen, I still feel that, <laughs> <laughs> but I now realize how to be helpful to a production um and that's been very helpful where i go hey do you want to see my boards in progress i don't care anymore well let me i'll jump on a call and i can show it to you i'm not precious about my work anymore in the same way because i understand that the reason why your supervisor wants to see it is they just want to make sure that you're on schedule and maybe mm -hmm. like help you out if you're going the wrong way they're not gonna punish you they're not gonna say oh my god you suck that might happen if you don't communicate with them like that's it's a higher percentage chance that if you don't show them stuff and you're not helpful and you're not easily to contact that's where you're gonna get into trouble versus someone 
that even if you're not perfect or doing the job right, if you're enthusiastic, if you're checking in constantly, you're going to be your director's and production's favorite person because that communication is so essential. And that was something that I think directing truly taught me where I realized if I am constantly showing that I can communicate and get stuff in and it's on time and or even early and I can show progress to the people that are working above me, they can feel more secure that they know that the production is going to be getting stuff in on time, which is a lot of the director job is sitting and waiting and hoping. Yeah. It's not fucking up. And not even in like a critical way, just in like, you're like, oh God, I hope that they don't send me like a empty storyboard profile at the end of this week because then my, my job is screwed. And then I have to work 90, 90 <laughs> hours yeah. to make sure that <laughs> the episode is made. That is the scariest thing for a director. So if just you can provide people. That, yeah trusting people it's, it's trusting people but it's like what you were saying is like sometimes <laughs> that's happened to me that's happened to friends you get like a like a store of a profile you open it and you're like well there's four drawings in this <laughs> and you're like okay <laughs> well buckle up because uh we gotta make this into a hundred drawings but yeah no, it's, it's, and again, like, I think um, when you're a board artist only, you don't realize how much you're affecting where everyone else is in the pipeline and affecting other people's jobs. And as a director, you become hyper-conscious of that. So as V said, it's not only just, oh God, I got to work 90 hours. You're like, oh God, um, the production that has to upload this file now has to stay up late because I, they can't upload the file until I'm done with it to make the PDF for the episode. Design doesn't know what the episode's going to look like and they don't have the sets approved yet because I got in the boards late. It's like all these things, it's a domino effect and you make other people suffer or edit isn't getting these boards on time. They can't start building the edit until they get all the boards. And so those are the things that I have such more of an appreciation for as a director of being aware and appreciative of people's time and making sure that I'm not the pain point in the production um, as much as possible because yeah. it really, sometimes you can't help it, you know, disasters happen, like stuff happens, but even if you can communicate that immediately, it, it can help so much in just making the pain a little easier <laughs> for yeah. everyone. Yeah, the worst thing I I could do as a director for me was having people stay late because of something that happened on my end. You know that that's my biggest. It feels bad. Yeah, yeah, it feels horrible. You don't want that, so it's like trying to stop that from happening. Um, you know, and again, sometimes it, the pipeline blows up. <laughs> I think that the the biggest struggle that that I've had in those situations is when I can see something that I, I that I really want to make a note on but mm. I know that it's going to it's going to cause some other people some problems and maybe we're like up against the deadline mm. and trying to let go of those things that like it's a it's a note that's probably a personal preference thing that like no one else is going to notice but it's I know it's going to gnaw at me for a long time if it doesn't get done <laughs> Yeah, those are those are those are big struggles too. Or even like, you know, sometimes you have really have a vision and your supervisor's like, Well, I wanted it this way, and you're just like having <laughs> to sit there and going, Yeah, you're gonna change it back, and then they change it back and you have to draw it twice. <laughs> and sometimes that's just 
you know, I mean, I guess it happens with board artists and directors too. And <laughs> I always feel very apologetic when I, you know, ever give a note that, you know, changes because I try to always make it better, not worse for anyone I'm working with. But yeah, that, that can be like a struggle too, just like knowing what to fight for, when to fight for it, who's it going to matter to, you yeah. know, it's, I've definitely worked extra hours on things no one's pointed out because for me, it was important and it, yeah, <laughs> gets to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to, um, I like to ask, especially directors, this, a lot of times some very silly SMP notes come across your plate and I'm curious uh, if you have any funny SMP stories, uh... oh man, I I wish I did. I I I think because I've worked in mostly like YA or kind of adult spaces, I haven't gotten really. I'm trying to think of major SMP stuff that I've gotten, but only like when I was briefly on DC Superior Girls, which was for a very short stint, did I hear some ridiculous ones, like mostly about seatbelts and stuff. So we didn't really have, yeah, seatbelts is the the girls like the car was zooming around and it was like in chaos and they were driving on the wrong side of the road and they were like do they have their seatbelts and it was like okay <laughs> on, sure. uh, on, on pickle and peanut they used to make fun of that because uh like the, they'd have a character on top of the car but the seatbelt would still be on them like like coming out of the car on them as they're riding <laughs> on top of the car like just just to <laughs> stick it to the smp a little bit my god that's incredible i i love that <laughs> i have a couple of quick questions for you that are fine from the uh, at art of cb scorch from soft says you can make an animated elden ring series yay they give you two options one make a prequel series leading up to the event of rani turning into a doll or two a retelling of her side quest which one do you pick? <laughs> so interesting. I mean, oh, I didn't expect like a FromSoft, you know, make your own series question. Um, I think, uh, let's see. Hmm. I think actually telling the story of how she became a doll and sort of the origin of the families would be really interesting, like prior to um, you kind of coming in, the Ashen One coming in and um kind of seeing the world like the pre-world with um uh seeing like the breakup between Renal and Radon, like seeing you know the um, i wow it's been a while since i played the game and now all the r names are blending together <laughs> <laughs> um, what's his face um radigan so radigan and and like how he she like came about and like all of that like i think there's so much cool lord elden ring but this is my my hot take i i don't have an easy answer for this but my hot take is elden ring should be a mostly quiet silent uh animated series if they were to do it and i would love to see it in like almost a flat tapestry style wow um, that's like would be my dream hot take <laughs> i hope the person that asked that question was uh the their they work there and, and they're trying to get you to be the showrunner or something Hey, listen, I would happily show run an Elden Ring series, so don't tease me. <laughs> I feel like that's like I feel like that's like at least 50% of the animation industry's dream, right? Because <laughs> yeah. like a video game has like so much lore and cool and fantasy and dark. Yeah. Yeah, but oh, what God. percentage of the animation industry could handle it? 
I well, know. I'm a fantasy thing next. I mean, I guess Avatar's fantasy, so I don't. But like, you know, um, medieval fantasy. I want to work on a medieval fantasy thing, and if it was dark and like Green Knight esque, extra cool. So yeah, in the Elden Ring sphere, that would be so cool. <laughs> <laughs> We're asking for another hot take at Casey Pants Pants. Ask what is an overrated opinion about storytelling slash storyboard that you wish can go away in the future. <laughs> oh man, that's am I gonna get spicy? Am I gonna do the Eugene meme on Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> An overwrought opinion on storytelling. Mm, I guess this is this is honestly a spicy take with the current. I think that good storytelling needs morally gray characters, and I worry that we're getting to a point of in media where everyone has to be good and nice um, especially in animated series and even for kids and I wish there was more gray and I think it's okay for characters to be gray I think humans are gray and I think they're more compelling when they're gray and I worry about characters that have to be morally perfect I think it makes less interesting stories so that's like my genuine hot take is I really think that we should Trop, trying to make sure that every character is morally perfect in order to like them I think that characters are more interesting when they're human and it makes me sad that that's like a big talking point in fandom it really does make me sad <laughs> I want I want imperfect people and for them to grow they need room to grow that's so funny that is so true I could talk about this for hours but I want to ask you more questions so I'll refrain but it is very <laughs> true and I love what you just said at pencil workshop on twitter asks what's something difficult about being a story artist that not many people think of when it comes to that position or, or and how could one improve that well i don't have a solution for improving it but endurance it is it is you're running a marathon mm-hmm. yeah. i would say don't burn out and understand that you it isn't I guess this is the way to solve it it's not a perfect solution but one thing that I didn't know when I was first breaking in is I didn't realize how much I'd be drawing every day and how fast I had to be and how much I had to draw and the amount you have to draw every day it is it is a lot you have to be quite fast and when you're first starting out you're not comfortable and you're drawing it because you're not used to drawing quickly so getting comfortable with that is really important so working on your gestures being more comfortable with messy drawings and perfect drawings and just getting it all out is important but again also not overexerting yourself early on so that by mid-production you can't function anymore you have to sleep you have to rest if you're not getting your work done in time let the production know, but also figure out ways that you can lessen the burden on yourself. You might be drawing too complicated. You might be overthinking it. Talk with your director more. You're sitting on a scene and you can't pump anything out. Talk with your director, sit with them, try to figure it out rather than you stewing in silence and then burning yourself out and doing it all the night beforehand and then pulling an all-nighter because it's going to add up. You're going to feel it when you're older. And it's, it's, as I said, it's a marathon. And one thing I have learned, thankfully, in turning 30 is I can no longer pull an all-nighter. I will, my body will shut down and it will fall asleep whether I want it to or not. And I don't make that choice for it anymore. So you will learn that there's a crashing point as you get older too. 
And so you have to be good. Luckily, I do think I balanced out in getting faster and more efficient as I got older. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it balanced out from my 20-year-old self. But that's just a, a big heads up is you don't even realize how much you'll be drawing and how much you have to know how to draw too. Um, you'll learn how to draw everything. Did I ever want to learn how to draw cars? Not really. Am I now good at drawing cars because I had to be? Yes. <laughs> that is so true. Dude, the car thing, the car thing is too real. <laughs> you draw so many cars. I had to draw a lot of cities, cars exploding, car accidents, car chases. <laughs> I've drawn so many car chases. <laughs> I mean, it's a good it's a good lesson for <laughs> if, if, if someone if an artist knows that they're not good at drawing something. Just practice drawing that thing over and over again because there's going to come a time, especially if you're working in storyboards, that the world of storyboards and the things that are inside of storyboards are not limited to the things you're comfortable with drawing. Yes. Oh, that's so true. It's so true. I feel I really feel that because I do remember the first couple of gigs that I had in, in, in boards and especially when you work on sitcoms. I feel when you work on a fantasy show, it's a little bit more loosey-goosey because you, you you draw nature and chances are that in your life you've been in nature so you can recall it and you can draw it pretty easily. But uh, dang, if you're going to be in sci-fi or friggin' sitcom, you have to draw things that look realistic and you can't, you have to pull up a million references because you can't really, you can't fudge that stuff that much. Especially, I don't know, like, I don't buy you. I feel like talking about cars is so funny to me because, okay, you can draw like a cartoon car. Everybody can draw it. But like ever since I started drawing Rodney, I'm like, man, I actually got to look up friggin' references of what a truck actually actually looks like, what a bus actually looks like, what a friggin' Prius looks like. It's, it is so true. And it's it's so funny. funny. Like, I mean, Spider-Man was New York City. Yeah. (laughs) So we were drawing buildings and, and, you know, a lot of sets and a lot of things and a lot of structure uh, on that show, which which was part of what made it complicated. It's definitely structure is very important to learn and perspective is very important to learn. Scale, oh yeah, is very important to learn. There's a lot of character scale, but how big is a person to a chair? How big mm-hmm. is a person to a door frame? Very important things look extremely off in your cartoon, especially if it's a realistic looking cartoon. Dude, the doors, for real. I feel the doors. Like, I feel like a chair is fine enough because in life drawing, most of the time you're going to draw a model on a chair. But the freaking doors. Oh, my God. And, and it's and it's not even the, the height of the door. It's where you put it's where you put that knob when your yeah. character walks up and goes to have to turn the knob. And they're reaching it chest like level to try to turn the knob. You're like, oh, oh oops. Yeah, if the knob is too low, it looks so weird. If the wall is too thick or too skinny it looks like it's a set or like not real it's crazy like I, I doors like are is, insane this is, this is some of the stuff that you that you don't hear people talk about as much just like that those are like yeah. the the small struggles to trying to learn how yeah. to put characters into animated i mean basically what when you draw these scenes you're making little miniature snapshots of, of like a little dollhouse that your characters yes. are playing in and the and the things that they need to to handle, like they have to be be able to interact with uh, 
especially if you're gonna have people draw you know the props and have them make sense and... yeah it's it's a big component i mean that listen i that one stays in my head because i had a director humiliate me <laughs> so they oh, made no. me get up no they made me get up and they said go walk towards the door and, <laughs> and see how tall the handle is to where your hand is and <laughs> where your hand li-. like they had me like do all of that and they were like use yourself as the reference when you're trying to figure it out and i was like that's really helpful <laughs> and it it was you know it was on yeah. my first job i was called out i didn't know how to figure it out and i was doing it all from my mind because i was one of those stupid kids and i shouldn't say stupid because you're not stupid you're taught wrong um i was one of those kids that was taught wrong who didn't think you use reference and it took me a few years to learn that and i am embarrassed to say i worked as a professional for several years before i finally used reference dude it's so true it's so true i feel like man i feel like i waited too long to start using reference as well no this is a hundred percent yes I feel like I only started using references when I started working on The Loud House because it was a sitcom and it was things that I was culturally unfamiliar with. Like, they're in an arcade. You know exactly what an arcade is. And I'm like, oh my God. I for- <laughs> no. Uh, we- I mean, I've never been in an arcade in France. I don't even know if we have arcades in France. And if we do, they look very different. Um, and so, like, stuff like that. that I- and, like, school buses. Because I was like, I know what a French school bus looks like. But I-, I I know I need to be very specific with how I draw the American school bus. Because it's not the same look. And-, and then I was just like, yeah. Like, references are so important. So funny. It's so true. One thing that I... I don't know... Okay, this is my pet peeve. Now this is just me, like, rambling. But I don't know if you've had to have people hold smartphones. But I feel like... Now, when I see a drawing of somebody holding a smartphone and they haven't used a reference, I'm like, nobody holds a phone like this. <laughs> um, well, funny enough, my comic, my characters are constantly using a cell phone uh-huh. because they have like a tracker on their phone. And I got very good at learning how characters hold a phone and lunch trays. I've learned a lot of like hand specific things on, on this job. I, I've had to do cell phone hoses for shows before, but like the amount that it is in my comic is hysterical. Like they are constantly pulling out their phones. So I constantly have characters like walking around tracking things with their phones. And I was just like, I, what's also weird is one of my characters doesn't have like a traditional hand. Oh. Um, so it's like, I have to do, she has like a bear claw. Um, so, oh. <laughs> so yeah, it's, there's definitely aspects to my characters where they, uh, they hold a lot of stuff and again I had to look up lunch trays because I didn't know how a lunch tray looks and you think you know what a lunch tray looks but there's so many different types of lunch trays do you want to have the indented type do you want to yes. have the flat type how does the food what kind of food are they getting are they bringing lunch from home like weird things that you end up referencing that it's just so much better if you <laughs> yeah if you look it up I'm like no that's I'm gonna make it's... it my mission to never have someone hold a phone regularly honestly it's every single one is going to be unbelievable the most ridiculous way that you would hold the phone it's so tough because i feel like the way the fingers wrap around the frame of the phone can instantly make or break the believability of like what they're doing like especially because you can be holding a phone to take a picture and that looks different than like holding a phone to show somebody look this is this is a funny meme to like holding a phone to how how you're talking to somebody on the phone are you talking like just 
to the butt or like are you putting like like a like a new generation or are you putting it against your ear like an old fart like <laughs> you know what I mean it's like it's so interesting to me um yeah it's so funny I think let's see let's see let's see let's see we have one last oh two more questions I like this one from Derek Malik Joe hey I said your name right this time I think Malik right <laughs> since working as a board artist director what advice would you give a board artist that's looking to one day become one also what are some things they can do more of as an artist so I think Sean kind of actually said this really well which is ask a lot of questions and various I feel like I was always a very curious person especially in-house I would always bug my directors and ask them questions about the process and I think they saw me as someone that they felt could move up because of it because I seemed very excited about more aspects outside of just what I was doing like they were like oh you're really curious about everything like I learned I would sit with my supervisor retake supervisor on disenchantment and ask him about lead sheets now I had not seen lead sheets before and I would sit with him and he would show me the process because I was just genuinely curious and I think that immediately shows people who eventually will look to hire you again because that's how I got my first directing job was from him actually he said hey I'm supervising a series do you want to come direct um mm. and so he remembered that I would sit with him asking about the lead sheets and also there's also the secret truth you gotta turn in good sequences and people want you to be reliable so it, both reliable in terms of getting stuff in on time and being, you know, keeping to the schedule, being good for the production. Also reliable in terms of your work, which takes time and just growth and education, which is you just get better at boarding. You feel comfortable in the style. They know you can handle the style. They know you can do what the show needs. And that is one of the ways that you can become a director. So I think all of those culminating together can help lead you into that position. It's also a chance thing. I'm not going to lie. It's also chance. There has to be director positions available. There has to be a lot of, I think a lot of us moved up during a time where there was an influx of tons of productions and not enough directors. So there, it was really easy to promote people. Right now we're a little bit in a phase where people who have tons of experience are directing again, and mm -hmm. it'll be harder for people to move up for a little bit just because there's not as many positions to go around. So they're going to hire people with that experience. So that's just sometimes a reality. And again, my supervisor had to get a supervising role on another show in order for me to get that recommendation. That doesn't always happen, you know? So those are things that kind of have to come into the universe to make it happen. And listen, I've heard about entire crews quitting and sometimes a person gets moved up because they're the only one that stayed. That is a way to get a job. It's a toxic way to get a job. So yeah. toxic for you. I mean, not not a toxic behavior, but I just mean like it might be toxic that you did it, but you moved up. So sometimes that can happen is you were the person that was willing to stay on a production that was crumbling and they need someone to fill that bill. I've heard that happen. And listen, I, I'm all for, you know, get it if you need, you know, if you want it. Like if you're like, I'm willing to take the stress and the, the brunt of that in order to move up in my role. Godspeed. I think sometimes that's how you have to do it in corporate industry. And then in terms of how to improve in a general sense with art, what we were just talking about, reference, study. That's, that's for me, that was the big one. 
it sounds silly, but I was like, the first time I looked at references, I got 10 times better as an artist. And it was embarrassing. It was embarrassing to realize how much better I could have been the whole time. <laughs> it was like, oh, I can just look up a thing and look at it and know what it looks like and I'll draw better. <laughs> it's very silly, but that is a lot of people don't do it enough. And also um, studying art too, not just studying life references, studying the way where people put their lines. Mm -hmm. I find that studying art actually is better for me than studying li life sometimes because you get to see why people put their lines and where. Um, and that clarity is really helpful. Um, I think anime actually is really great at seeing folds and fabrics and, and understanding fabric, for example. That was how I learned fabric, is I saw where's the line in the fabric? Um, because it, you don't do a million lines, like you look at a skirt online and you go, oh, there's a ton of lines in the fabric. And then you watch an anime and there's like two lines. Mm -hmm. and you're like, where are those lines put and what is it conveying? Those Those can be really key things to learn to improve your art. And that's just on a general art scope. But I do think art improving your art helps improve your success in this industry. In yeah, general. I agree. Let's kind of go over this question a little bit. I feel we brushed on it, but I think we can uh, we can get a little bit more insight from you. From So at Manny's My Name asks, any advice for any aspiring comics artists out there who aim to make their way into the industry? Um, so specifically for comics artists breaking into animation or in breaking into comics? I think let's try to brush up a little bit on both because I, I was also wondering if it was like comics artists going into animation or mm -hmm. comics artists just getting their first book. But I think uh, both can be interesting. Okay. I feel like I have like poor answers in terms of the book one mm -hmm. because I got hit up for an animatic that I did um versus like a a comic but the best thing is to make your own stuff and put it out there it's really for me like as a comic artist that wants to break into comic make your own comic put it online because mm -hmm. comic jobs want to see comic samples they want to see interiors they want to see that they're cool to see covers but if you're only doing illustrations they're not going to hire you to do a comic because they want to see if you know how to do an interior layout um so make your own comic make your own webtoon it's good ways people will see how you tell a story i know a few people that my agent reps because they saw a few pages from their comic and loved their layout sensibilities and then loved the story that they pitched they did um dv pit is a really popular hashtag there's a discord channel for it now if you want to do dv pit that's how you can sell graphic novels as well um you pitch under the tag and agents look at what you've pitched and if they like you they'll contact you um if you want to be more proactive, you can put a pitch packet together and submit them to agents, but that is, or to publishers, but that's a little harder. I have a friend also who did an art book first, and now she's doing um, a children's book because publishers liked her artwork, and she just did illustrative work, but that's in the children's book section. So if you're more of a biz dev artist, um, children's books probably will be easier for you. If you're more of a graphic artist or a storyboard artist, graphic novels are probably going to be more of your path. And then for comic artists breaking into storyboards so the big difference between comics and storyboards is there's two cinemagraphic language and looseness so in comics you do thumbs and the thumbs are generally too rough for what i would consider good storyboard thumbs and then your cleans are way too clean 
So finding that in between is going to be a little tricky. Funny enough, going from boards to comics, I have to get more used to cleaning up my stuff than I'm usually used to doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you don't have to. There's certainly comics that have a looser style, like these. Mm -hmm. I feel like Rodney's kind of a, an in-between where it's both clean and loose. Yeah, I'd probably have to clean it up a bunch, though, if it you were to, to get published. And you know what I mean? If it were to get published, mm -hmm. published. <laughs> that's, that's fair. But I feel like your style works really well where it can be loose. But mm -hmm. I do feel like a lot of illustrative work tends to be pretty clean. But I, I think your style works really well, personally. But yeah, so I think that that's something that you kind of, for comic artists, will be hard is loosening up. That your drawings have to be usually looser. I think comic artists tend to be a little too... Comic artists without that animation experience tend to have less strong shapes and silhouettes. Their stuff tends to be more realistic. Um, and you can, for storyboards, you're going to want to have more of a flow, a gesture to your art. I think that that's a difference that I see versus artists from animation coming to comics or people that have that experience. Now, some comic artists are just amazing and know that off the bat. But comic artists, I usually find, draw characters a little too um, rigid. And it's about finding that gesture instead is going to help you in story art. And in terms of cinemagraphic language, comic layout and storyboards are completely different. They have some of the same principles like screen direction and, and other guides that are good to follow. But you want to look at film and how it, those shots are made versus like how you would do a comic layout. So study the, the format that you want to be in. If you want to jump to boards, look at how film is made, look at movies, look at how things are staged there. It's going to look a bit different from how it looks in comics because comics are trying to communicate more things and you can play with space more. It's a completely different process. And I actually found it really hard to go back to comic formatting after so many years of not doing comics yes. after I did boards because I just wanted to do little thumb panels. So I was like, I want to do my movie panel. I feel safe here. And I had to like think about what about verticals? What about, you know, yeah. other different panels that kind of were more experimental because I wanted to challenge myself to do more interesting things than I think what <laughs> boards from a storyboard artist would, you know, comic formatting would be in a storyboard sense, which is just flat, flat, flat. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I do feel like the page layout and and being able to frame in different format like different rectangles and squares is so important because it because you're always working with the same re rectangle when you're in boards but when you're in comics you're gonna have all kinds of different shapes that you have to work with well you you working in comics is going to make you super adaptable for when we finally have vertical movie theaters like tiktok like, i know where, where right? all the movies are in vertical <gasps> oh my god also, I will say comic artists do have an advantage that other artists don't. And actually something I realized, even working on my book while working in art in an, in an animation, you know how to draw things that you don't want to draw. And that is great. That is what we talked about earlier. That skill is so great to have. And comics do make you draw things that you don't want to draw because the yeah. story needs it. So that's if there is one skill that's transferable between the two of them that is a great skill to have <laughs> and other types of artists don't always get that experience so it's really great to have that like if you're more of like i do character portraits i'm like if you do character portraits you're probably not drawing that bus that you didn't want to draw <laughs> sure so true well we like to ask all of our guests how they if they've 
experience creative block or and if they you know and if you've experienced it like how does it feel like and how do you deal with it I I feel like I am fortunate where I don't often I guess where I have a block is sometimes how I want to execute things if I have a creative block that tends to be more where it is which I guess is a little bit what writer's block is where it's not that you don't have ideas it's that you don't know how to execute them and I think for me that's where my blocks generally happen um time and, and I think for me getting out and doing something else I actually find I break my blocks the most when I have another project going on and I'm avoiding the project I need to be working on by working on that one. It's mm. silly, but I find I'm a multitasker. I generally have like three or four projects going on. I'll break story points all of a sudden on a story I've been working on for several years by working on something else that I, and I want to be distracted from. It, so. <laughs> That's helpful. That's, I love that. That is so fun. Um, That's such a fun way to end this episode to like have multiple different things going on so you can just always work on the one that you like the most i'm trying to think but you know what today we're just not gonna do any segues we're just gonna go right <laughs> okay. into the end so, so v has been practicing her segues <laughs> and <laughs> and and the funny the funny part is is instead of not doing a segue v announces that she's not gonna do a segue I like it. It's my bit. It's my bit now. I hope somebody in the comments one day talks about it because listen, I've been trying to get better at it, but sometimes my improv brain is just zero and hey, I'm just yeah. like, well, it's hey, the end of the show. <laughs> hey YouTube, hey YouTube, uh, uh suggest some segues that we could have said right there. Yes. Comment. Tell me how I could have done a better job and I'm going to learn from you listeners because that's how you become a director. You ask questions. So, you know, you can always learn from anyone that's around you. You know what? That's, <laughs> I know that everybody's just like, I don't know if it's secondhand embarrassment, Sean. Is it? Or is it just funny? I hope it's not, you're not getting too embarrassed. But it's so funny because you're just continuing not to end the episode. <laughs> but that one, it's the end of this creative block. <laughs> Lisa, thanks for being our guest and sharing your story. Of course, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> oh my God. And thank you uh, to our listeners. Follow us on social media at CRTV Block, where we ask for drawing prompts and questions to ask our guests. Huge thanks to our editor, Clements, for editing the podcast, and Marco for helping us produce the show. Uh, and I believe we have one more person to thank this week yes yes we have a new we have a new team member ibuka hi and thank you so much for being our video editor uh we have somebody who's helping us putting out some short clips on youtube shorts tiktok and instagram reels so we're super excited to have him on board if you love our show um then support us on patreon becoming a patron gets you early access to interviews and access to our discord community but another great way for you all to support us is to interact with our episodes by either commenting, uh, commenting, liking, or sharing our show. Um, it helps a lot to get more ears on it. Click the link in the description of this episode for the Patreon. I've been your host, B. And I've been Sean. Uh, if I survive the COVID, <laughs> I'll um, see you next week. No, I'm just kidding. I'll, I'll be okay. Uh, keep being creative. I'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.